And uh, as you're doing that, let's pray together. There are two very common ideas that people have about God and themselves. Uh, The first, I'm no worse than anyone else, better than some. If God is here, I'll probably be okay with him in the end. Uh, On the other hand, rather the opposite. I am such a mess. My life is a mess. If God is really there, I have no hope whatever of pleasing him. On one hand, self-confidence. I'm not too bad. On the other, self-loathing. What a mess I'm in. On this side, despair. I have no hope with God. On this side, well, indifferent optimism. If he's there, I'll probably be okay. Most of us will tend more towards one of those than the other, I guess. Some of us may oscillate between them. Well, this part of the Bible that we're looking at this evening deals with both of those extremes. Luke chapter 15, please turn there. It's one of the best-known stories in the Bible, really. It's a gripping story. It's a story of betrayal or family breakdown. It's the kind of story that would be great in the soap operas. It would keep EastEnders running for a month or two or three, and then it would pop up again in three years' time when the son returned home. And one of the best things about this story is that it takes us right to the heart of the Christian message. If you want to know what Christianity is about, this is such a good passage to look at. So if you're a a new person here, uh, just looking in from the outside, this is a great place to start to look. And if you're an old hand and you've been at it for a long time and you need a reminder of what the Christian message is about, well, you couldn't do better than spend the next 20 minutes or so looking at this amazing story. Because nowhere else in the whole world will you see God portrayed quite as he's portrayed in the words of Jesus in this chapter. Before we get to that and looking at the story itself, did you notice that this is, this is not really three parables, but one parable? Did you notice that? It's one story in three parts. Look at verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And look at verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one of them. And look at verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. He rolls straight from one into the next, into the next, without break. They're told together. And do you notice how the content belongs together? The first is a story about a sheep. A man loses it and searches for it and finds it and rejoices over it. But the punchline is not about searching and finding. It's about repenting. Look at verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The second story is about a coin. A woman loses it and searches for it and finds it and rejoices when she's found it. But again, the punchline is not about finding, 
It's about repenting, verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The third story is a long story, much longer than the others. And most of it is about a young man who repents. He comes to his senses. He changes his mind. He returns home to his father. But do you notice that this time, the punchline is not about repenting, but about the lost thing being found. Look at verse 32. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Did you see the pattern there? First story, a lost and found story with a repentance punchline. Second story, a lost and found story with a repentance punchline. Third story, a repentance story with a lost and found punchline. They belong together. It's one story in three movements. And the climax is the third. It's bigger. There's more detail. That's where the bulk of the action happens. And that's where we're going to be spending most of our time this evening question why does Jesus tell this parable well the answer is right at the beginning of the chapter now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered this man welcomes sinners and eats with them the story is told because of the shocking way in which Jesus behaves Two groups of people are involved. On one hand, a bunch of truly disreputable people gathering round to listen to Jesus. And he seems to be glad to eat with them. On the other hand, a group of decent people who are not at all impressed that he should behave in this way. Now let me say that at this point, we need to do a bit of cultural translation. For in our own culture, we love inclusiveness or think we do. And it's trendy to be compassionate towards marginalized people, and we think we are. And we look at the Pharisees and teachers of the law here, and we think, what disgraceful people. Imagine thinking that you're superior like that. But to think like that is to misunderstand the story entirely. Let me try to bring it up to date for you. Imagine you belong to your local mosque, and you saw your imam going out for lunch with the leadership of the local British National Party. Would that please you or worry you? Or again, imagine if the leaders of Friends of the Earth started going out to dinner regularly with the bosses of multinational companies, oil, gas, mining, logging, and seemed to be becoming best of friends. Would that look like progress to you or compromise? Or imagine if the chair of governors of your local primary school was regularly seen having meals at the house of a notorious sex offender. Do you think that would go down well with the parents at the school gate? Or badly? You see, for these people, Jesus' behavior is every bit as shocking as any of those would be to the relevant parties in our own culture. Back then, a tax collector was someone everyone viewed with hate and suspicion. 
Now, I guess it's true to say that a tax collector is rarely the favorite person in the room. Any tax collectors here? See, they never own up. They never own up. But with us, that's just a money thing. Back then, however, quite different because Israel's history had been full of problems caused by her unholy alliances with foreign powers. And being a tax collector back then meant getting into bed with the occupying Roman authorities. It was viewed as not just being anti-nation, but anti-God. Hated as much as someone who collaborates with the enemy in wartime, or someone who betrays their family, or someone who's callously unfaithful to their spouse, or someone who sells their daughter into prostitution. That kind of person. And Jesus is eating with them. And that raises big questions, and it's not surprising. In contrast, the Pharisees would have been viewed as the good guys. They were serious about God, passionate about the well-being of their nation. Ask any mother of Israel, would you like your son to grow up a Pharisee or a tax collector? And it would be Pharisee every time. A no-brainer. Why does Jesus tell the parable? Because his behavior has shocked the onlookers. Question. Why is Jesus eating with these people then? That's the question they have, isn't it? This man welcomes those people and eats with them. Why is he doing that? Two answers to this, and both of them mainly from the third story. Why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, the first is a negative answer. It is not because they are nice people. The younger son in this story is not a nice person. He is not a lovable rogue. This is not your average teenage rebellion. This is a son who cares so little for his father that he cannot wait for him to be dead so that he can get his hands on the inheritance. Now, things like this happen in real life. I, I worked, as uh, mentioned earlier on, in hospital for a while, and I've worked just long enough in hospital medicine to come, come across a number of occasions uh, when children could not wait to get their hands on their parents' money and property. It happens in life, and when you see it happening, it is revolting to behold. That is what's happening here in this story. Give me the money that's coming my way when you're dead. I'm off. That's what this young son says. Uh, in the last church in which we worked, we had a baby boom. And I don't know what your church is like, but in our church, uh, as soon as was decently possible... Uh, parents bring their children to church because they love them so much they just can't bear not to show them off to everybody and everybody crowds around at least all the women crowd around and they go oh isn't she lovely and all the guys go imagine one of those bright little lovelies growing up and saying I'm off now I want from you what will be mine when you are dead Imagine hearing words like that from the lips of your child. Imagine the grief, the anguish that would cause. 
not only is the inheritance taken callously like that, but taken and spent in a manner that makes the parenting seem entirely worthless. He squandered his wealth. Yes, he was wealthy. He was well provided for in wild living, the text says. And he ends up in the pigsty in a foreign country, which for a Jewish audience is a fate worse than death. A more determined and brutal repudiation of the love of a parent could hardly be imagined than the one that's portrayed here. Well, when he comes to his senses, his attitude is genuine enough. Look at him, verse 18. I'll set out and go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. His attitude there, I think, is genuine enough, but we are not meant to read this story and like him. It's a horrible story. And if you look at the Pharisees and teachers of the law in verse 2 and think what miserable, miserable and ungracious people these are, we simply haven't understood how shocking Jesus' behavior is for those who witnessed it. Back in chapter 14, Jesus has told the story of a great banquet, a great celebration at the end of everything, when God straightens everything out, when his kingdom finally arrives. And it's a great celebration to which all sorts of people are invited. And how any person can come. It's a wonderful picture of joy of what will dawn on the world when God's king finally reigns for everyone to see. And Jesus, in chapter 14, tells those following him about the cost of following him along the road to that great celebration in the end. It's going to cost everything to follow him. For him, it's going to mean death before glory. At the end of chapter 14, right at the end, the last words, look at them, please, he urges those who hear him to pay attention. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And look who's listening at the beginning of chapter 15. The tax collectors and the sinners. They're the ones gathering around to listen. Those people. The people that will be right on the bottom of your invitation list to the banquet at the end. Those are the people who are wandering up and listening to Jesus. And you can hear the onlookers saying, it cannot be as easy as that, can it? Can it? For people just to come wandering up and listen to Jesus and appear to be on the route to the banquet at the end, that great celebration, it cannot be as easy as that, can it? It can't be right. Surely people who live anti-God lives like these ones have can't just wander up and listen and be in. And Jesus says, well, it'll cost them everything. But yes, it's precisely as easy as that. He who has ears to hear anyone, let him hear. Now, of course, the young man in the story doesn't come back the same way he went away from home. He has changed. 
His motives are still self-interest. Look at verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. There's a good chunk of self-interest there, isn't there? But he does recognize that he has no right whatever to belong to this family. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, he says. Jesus says to the onlookers, Don't think that these people eating with me are just the same now as they've always been. But it is not because they're nice people that they're in or following or heading for the banquet at the end. Why is Jesus eating with people like these? Well, not because they're nice people. Why then? Well, here's the positive side. Why is Jesus eating with people like these Answer, because of what God is like. That's why. You see, God is the father in the story. The father in the story is a picture of God in heaven. Jesus often portrays God as a generous father, the giver of life, the giver of all good things. And here is a father who's given good things to his two sons and experienced from one of them Dreadful and undeserved hostility and hurt. To have your child want your money but not your company or your life must be a bitter thing for a parent. And yet this son is a picture of how often we do relate to God, live the life that he's given us, enjoy the good things that he constantly provides and relate to him well, pretty much as we would to a dead person. The father in this story is not naive and he's not a fool, but he loves his son. And he's constantly on the lookout for him. So much so that he spots him way over there before he's arrived at the door. And he can't restrain his joy. And the son has his speech all prepared. I'll say to him, but he hardly gets a chance to get a word out because his father is so overjoyed to see him. Now, of course, at one level, this is a story about repentance, about someone coming to their senses and changing their mind and coming back. But the big issue in this story is not what the son does, but what the father is like. That's the sharp end of the story. What God is like. Who is the story told for? Well, it may well have been told for the to tax collectors and the, and the sinners. It would be reassuring for them to hear that God accepts people like this. But it's told not mainly for them, is it? It's told mainly, verse 2, for the Pharisees and teachers of the law. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. How can that be right? How can that be godly? And you see that in the story because the story ends not with the younger son but with the older son. The upright one, the well-behaved one, the the stay-at-home one. Two things about this older son. First, he does not love what his father loves. Suppose one of you 
Jesus starts off. Verse 4. Suppose one of you is a hundred sheep and loses one of them. He starts off with something they can identify with. They love their sheep. Sheep are valuable. They'd go and search for a lost one. They'd rejoice when it was found. Well, says Jesus, just like that, God rejoices when sinners repent. Another one, verse 8. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. They can identify with that. You can imagine that finding a lost coin, if you've only got ten, would be a great cause of rejoicing. Well, says Jesus, just like that, God rejoices when sinners repent. But the real kick is in the third story. There is something this older brother does not rejoice about. His father is full of joy. Look at verse 28. But he is angry and he refuses to go into the celebration. And in that, he's right out of line with his father. He is not like his father. His father is quite different. This is a father who every day, about three seconds after he wakes up, thinks about his son. As the day goes on, he gets involved in other things. It's a busy farm. There's lots to do. But during the day, from time to time, as he works on the farm, his eyes stray across the fields to where the road crosses the horizon. All the time, every day, he has that lost one in mind. All the time, he is longing to glimpse that figure, that well-known and much-missed figure. And one day, he looks up, and instead of the empty road, there is a figure on the road. Could it be? Could it be? It's him. It's him. And he runs out and he is full of joy, overwhelmed with joy. And it really doesn't matter what his son says, does it? That picture of a man running out and jumping all over this one who's returned. And getting all the good stuff out for a massive party is a picture painted by Jesus himself of what the love of God is really like for disgraceful people who come back to him. Not reproach. Instead, a huge celebration. Best robe, bright ring, number one cow, everything. The picture is of a father who absorbs in himself all of the hurt and doesn't hold it against his son and is just bursting with joy when his son returns home. But the older son does not love what his father loves. Second thing to say about him is that he doesn't really know his father. Look at the resentment in verse 29. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he might be a son of yours, but he's no brother of mine, has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Does he view his father as his father really is? Well, no. The father in this story is generous and loving and kind and gentle and forgiving 
and full of joy. No, he views his father as a harsh taskmaster. Someone who ought to have been pleased with all his hard work but isn't pleased. There's no sense, is there, in his mind that his father's generosity is something he's just going to enjoy for himself and celebrate. No, he has to win approval. And he doesn't feel that he's won approval. He never gave me any of that stuff. And I worked really hard. And the father says, you're always with me, verse 31. Everything I have is yours. What are you thinking of to speak like that? Can't you see? We had to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother, he is your brother, was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. This is not a time for anger or resentment or sulking. It's a a time for rejoicing. He does not know his father, does he? Who is further away from the father in this story? The son squandering everything disgracefully in a foreign land? Or the son who lives in the house? Who is further away? Well, look how the story goes. Verse 4. One lost sheep. Verse 8. One lost coin. Verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. Not one lost, but two sons. The young one, far, far away geographically and emotionally, but at least he recognizes what his father is like. The older one, well, he lives upstairs. But he's miles away, is he not? Right on the inside all the time, but actually living in the same house with a distorted picture of the character of his father all those years. Well, let me sum up. It's a magnificently dramatic story. There is great encouragement here, but also there's a strong warning here. The encouragement is for anyone who tends to despair. If a son like this, who's done what he's done, can come right back into the family and be rejoiced about, then anyone can come back in and be rejoiced about, don't you think? It's a squalid story. And God rejoices when people like this come back. And the big issue is not what somebody does in coming back. It's not how sorry someone is. It's not how bad someone feels. It's not how pure somebody's motives are. It's not how radical somebody's repentance is. The big issue in this story is simply how generous the father is. For without that, everything else is a waste of time, is it not? doesn't matter how well you repent. If the father at home is not like this one, it's a complete waste of time. There is great encouragement here. These are the words of Jesus, the son of the father, about his father in heaven. God is really like the father in the story. He loves it 
Heaven rejoices when people who know that they've no right to be in the family come back to the family. Best robe, bright ring, number one cow, massive celebration. If you know that you have no right to belong, do not despair. But there's also a warning here, is there not? That it is possible to be really well behaved, appear to be on the God team, live in the house, be so close to the household that you look just like one of the family and not really belong at all. Not love the things that God loves. Not really know the character of the father at all. Isn't that extraordinary? But it's right there in the story. To think of God in a way that's simply not him. That'll show itself in all kinds of ways, like the older son. You may view your service of God as a long grind to win his approval. You may remember only too well all that you've done and how hard you've worked. And where's the rejoicing? Like the son in the story, you may be frustrated when the church household is upset by Jesus' salvation agenda. All that rejoicing, all these people rushing around and being glad over badly behaved types. Somebody I came across in another church said this, I wish all you new people would go away and we can get back to normal here. It's a good expression of this, precisely the thing in the story here, isn't it? Like the older son, you might think, if only it weren't for all these other people, I could have some of the attention. It might be shown you in your valuation of things other than the things that God values. The Pharisees, they'll go after a lost sheep. They can identify with a woman who rejoices in finding a lost coin. But faced with a disreputable person talking to Jesus, they lose patience with that very quickly. Give them the possibility of a bargain at Curry's or a, uh, a lucrative business deal or a discount in the sales and they'll be up early and pursuing that. But the possibility of some life waster repenting? Phew, can't get out of bed for that. Or it might just be shown in your attitude to God himself. I wonder if you find yourself resentful with how the Father has treated you. You might be bitter or angry about what has not come your way in life or about what has come your way in life. The fact that there's a great victory celebration to look forward to at the end, a celebration to die for. The fact that along the way the whole family rejoices as people join in in the route to that celebration just doesn't really do it for you. Well, if that's you, look at what this father says to his other lost son. Verse 31. My son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad 
For this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together.